0: On the programme, Resonant Names and Landscapes, Reclaiming the Medieval Art of Ireland. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. This evening, the first in a series of occasional programmes that consider each of the five volumes of Art and Architecture of Ireland, recently published for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre by Yale University Press. I'm joined in studio by Rachel Moss, editor of Volume 1, Medieval 400 to 1600, as well as one of that volume's contributing experts, Rory Sherlock. But first of all, we'll hear from artist Dorothy Cross. Her exhibition, Trove, currently running in the Garden Galleries at the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, is the result of her subjective search through our national collections for objects that fascinated her. A selection of Oem stones, those intriguing objects from our medieval past, and featured in the RIA Volume 1, is amongst the objects she chose. <laughs>
1: So there's this curation that has gone, this caring for and this minding and this marking to identify them and list them with different configurations on them, marking them with chalk, with numbers, with beautiful little painted red signs like, for example, W12 which refers to William Wilde, the father of Oscar Wilde. But I wanted to keep them together to show difference, actually, but to show power. And they stand on these old green plinths, which I was very, very keen to keep in the beginning, which probably date from kind of Victorian times. But I think because they're imbued with scars and scrapes and blemishes, that they actually also add to the life of the human Taking over of these stones that were put out in the landscape by humans with the first lines of language on their edges, so that you can see uh, marks of intelligence and the word being formed. Which, you know, as a younger person, I found extraordinary, and I looked at books to think would I ever learn to read it and never did. But the, the plinths here are painted a dull green, a kind of institutional green, and they're all different shapes and sizes with different mouldings. And I think they add to them absolutely exquisitely. If you found them in nature, of course, you'd have different things. You'd have lichens and algaes and mosses, and, you know, bird shit and ivy or whatever. But here there is this residue of the curation, the museum life of these things. And to bring them together, I felt in this room, where they originally were going to have a a Greek Apollo stand in the centre, I was so thrilled at that prospect. And after this, we're not sure how they'll be displayed, will they ever come together as a grouping like that again? It's like a group of strangers in some sense, and yet, you know, did the people who made the marks on the edge know each other? You know, I don't know, we don't know. Um, But they all had that same information of the alphabet, the OM alphabet. I knew immediately I would, I would like to borrow them, and Ned Kelly was the keeper of antiquities then, and he very graciously allowed us to borrow them. Um, these stones uh, occupy the second room, if you're navigating through this Garden galleries building in Emma, which is housing eight rooms of objects from the National Gallery, the National Museums of Ireland, including Natural History and the Museum of Country Life... Emma and the Crawford. So I in some ways created a kind of uh, scenario in each room. The Standing Stones room is a very kind of grounded male room. Joanne Mullen who worked with me had to get the floor reinforced to hold the weight because they weigh tons. The significance of, of the presence of this beautiful nubile Apollo in relationship to this if I had been allowed to borrow it I think would have been completely perfect we weren't allowed to borrow it because it's fragile and needs restoring and instead I put a photograph of it which is very very sadly not as powerful as it would be if it was you can imagine it amongst these black grey dark stones This pale white man-made figure you know and all these stones were carved by men presumably who had their own bodies. So it's all about bodies actually and what we're going to do in the run of this show is have uh, a male model who sometimes just models for artists to draw is going to come and stand naked for short periods of time amongst these stones instead of the Apollo and it's something I normally wouldn't do but it's bringing in again that thing of human time in relationship to ancient time which is something that I'm looking at very closely these days, possibly because I'm getting older, but I was always very conscious of that very, the brief span of time we inhabit the earth compared to these ancient stones that were you know, carved by men and women who lived very short periods as well. So this human body will stand there for maybe an hour a week throughout the three months of the show and then be gone and he'll relate maybe to the Willie McKeown painting, which is like a window into some gloaming on this wall, because the colour in Willie's painting actually, in some ways, mirrors the flesh of the man who will stand here. So it's, it's an occupation that will be brief. He is an older man, and it will bring in, I hope, some semblance of maker and the transition of, of time, I guess, you know. <laughs> I learned afterwards that some of these have been lacquered at different periods by different conservators and you know a lot, I think when they go back into the museum they will be probably brought down to their natural stone it doesn't bother me again because it's another strange human interference in a funny way which all kind of conservation is isn't it and that's why sometimes you know people would accuse me of finding more beautiful the wounded painting than the final lacquered painting and actually that's quite true in some ways I do because I prefer to see wrinkles than plastic surgery so it's all in that territory and it shows vulnerability and I'm very interested in vulnerability and it's something that I think as we pass through the world it's almost like it's forbidden to consider
0: Artist Dorothy Cross there at the Gallery Gardens in Emma, Rachel Moss, a lot that's fascinating in that and this idea of how we look at things, as was it, Ormstones, you know, very much present in your volume. Um, and again, how, how we look where something is placed, as in this volume, you know, helps us to maybe to see in a new light.
2: Yes, um, and it's actually what I introduce the book with because I think we often tend to take for granted the objects that we see, that we come across. We Typically, if we want to look at uh, a piece of early medieval art, we might just go straight into the museum and don't realise often that the way that we're looking at something is being conditioned by how we look at it, by the way that it's lit, the way that it's labelled, what it's actually displayed with. So I think what Dorothy's saying there is very interesting, and the the exhibition that she's put on, very important in terms of actually just challenging us to think, to step back a bit and say, well, how should we be looking at this? How should we be thinking about this? Um, And take it perhaps out of the context of the museum whether in our minds, which is often what, we, what we're forced to do, or indeed, uh, if, if possible, actually go and seek out those very rare um, objects that are still perhaps in the environments uh, for which they were made.
0: This might seem like a very basic question, but I think it's an important one. In coming to this subject, how did you seek to define art and architecture in relation to medieval Ireland? Obviously, one couldn't use the criteria that would be used today.
2: Yes, that's certainly the case. I think, I mean, today, particularly in terms of art, it's very much defined by the artist and the cult of the artist. So uh, a work is often seen as being good or important simply because of its connection uh, with a name. That's not the case uh, during the medieval period. Equally with architecture a linkage with a a particular named architect or architectural practice, or um, sometimes looking at, I suppose, the academic credentials uh, of a building. And again, um, during the medieval period, that's not the case. So it was one of the very fundamental things um, that needed to be addressed because um, one couldn't include the entire material culture uh, of the period. Essentially, what we did was we we started with the fundamentals and we, we looked back to the written sources, also to, to, I suppose, what survives, and questioned what was considered art during the period. What was it that instilled admiration in a medieval audience in terms of uh, an object um, or a building? So there's an essay, for example, in the book that looks at medieval art criticism, which I think is, is crucial to trying to interpret what was actually valued, what was seen as as um, important, One of the things that I draw out uh, in the book is the concept of wonder and this idea that looking at an object, if it instills wonder, and that's wonder in the sense of actually not being able to understand meaning immediately. And that's something that comes out very much with uh, medieval authors, this idea almost of the supernatural um, being held within an art object. So one of our most famous works of I suppose medieval uh, art criticism with relation to an Irish object written in the 1180s by a visitor to Ireland, Gerald of Wales so one of the the new Anglo-Normans coming in and he writes almost like a travelogue um, of Ireland and he talks about a gospel book that he encounters in, in Kildare, and he describes it in great detail and actually goes into layer upon layer of detail. So he starts off by describing seeing a page with the symbols of the four evangelists, and then he says, the more you scrutinise this, the more that you see. And he finishes off the piece, which is very evocative, and you can really sum up an image of the book in your mind. He finishes off uh, with, by saying, this work of art is so wonderful, it, it cannot be the work of man, it must be the work of angels. And it's that sense, I think, that we need to look for in medieval objects to see, is there the sense of mystery, the sense of the supernatural? That was what they were looking for. That was what they, they felt was art. And so that's one of the criteria <laughs> that I used. Um, obviously, with, with other things, you look at a beehive hut on Skellig Michael, mm-hmm. Was that considered architecture at the time, or was that simply a necessity? You're out in the wilds of of the Atlantic, and do you simply need shelter? That may well have been the case, although the more we begin to look at that landscape, the more we sense that maybe it was a ritualistic landscape, and that there is a a sense to the the way in which those buildings have been designed. So to a certain degree, with somewhere like that, certainly now, those buildings and instill a sense of wonder in us. And so I felt obviously somewhere like that It's crucial to include. So in a way the definition is is quite loose but the book certainly doesn't include absolutely everything. It doesn't include every single wooden plate or knife handle or that kind of thing. Things that are beyond the utilitarian. But I have attempted to try and actually uh, frame what might have been considered art and architecture at the time.
0: As you point out as well, James Joyce loved the Book of Kells and this is coming back to the notion of wonder. He said he carried a memory of a Everywhere uh, and always got inspiration from it. It's not that it's a centerpiece in this volume, but it's very, very much present. And as was, it is one of the great glories, is it not, of our artistic heritage? Uh, Much more than a a talisman of lost monastic culture. Although I didn't know, and I was struck by this, that in fact it was saved by a scout master from the Cromwellian army.
2: That's right. I mean, I think that again is, is the mark of a real masterpiece where you might have an iconoclastic movement, let's say. I mean, Cromwell is often blamed for the destruction of most of our, our medieval heritage. And yet, as you say, it's it's his scoutmaster who rescues it. In fact, even prior to that, the very first record that we have of what is probably the Book of Kells, the great gospel book of Kilia is in the Annals of Ulster in, in 1007, when it's stolen probably by a Viking raider. And again, the Vikings that's when they're just beginning to convert to Christianity. They wouldn't have cared too much about the Christian nature of the book. And yet even with that, it's stolen because it had a jewelled cover. The jewelled cover is taken. But rather than destroying the book itself, it's just buried. And I think, again, even going right back to that time, to the the very early 11th century, a Viking raider who isn't a Christian realises that this is something special. And again, the Cromwellians who presumably did burn an awful lot of uh, Christian books and and, uh, destroyed an awful lot of uh, other Christian relics, they recognise that this is something that's really, really special. And I I suppose it's an interesting point, again, about, um, in a way, the biographies of these objects. We tend to think of the Book of Kells very much in the time that it was created. But by the very, I suppose, virtue of its survival, it tells a whole story about how people actually valued it or, or understood it through various periods of history.
0: Many of us, I think, will think of a few iconic images of, mm. of objects from medieval art and architecture in this country. The Tara Brooch, the Book of Kells, uh, some of the buildings at Glendale Loch around Tower 2 and, and the Ardot Chalice all immediately spring to mind. How did those particular items take on such a power of metaphor almost for, for a whole world and, and what it represents?
2: Mm. They... they ...took on that role I suppose because of their unique nature and really the admiration of them and I suppose their role as icons of Irishness only dates back to the mid-19th century when really right across Europe nations, European nations were, were seeking to create a national identity through the revival of language and interest in language, obviously here um, with, with the Gaelic League, but also looking at visual identity. And really from the 1850s, we can see a very concerted effort which ties in with the birth of art history and, and archaeology as a discipline in Ireland to identify those buildings, those objects that distinguished us from other nations. And we're not alone in this. I mean, in England, you have the new parliament houses being built in the perpendicular Gothic style, which at the time was seen as a very English style that had been created there. So, But it's scholars such as George Petrie, such as William Wilde, who Dorothy mentioned, who begin to d- define these objects. What's interesting is that that before this time, for example, with the high crosses, when we delve a little bit deeper into the history of what people had said about them before, the high cross at Monastery Bois, which is one of the most famous, the locals referred to that as having been brought from Rome by the local saint. And there are other examples of high crosses being seen as Romish monuments, because the imagery on them was very strange in that context. So it really is a construct, I think, of, of the 19th century in this sense of these were things that were created before the coming of the Anglo-Normans, before the 800 years of oppression, and that was what made them particularly special as, as objects of Irishness. They certainly wouldn't have been created in that way. They wouldn't. Their makers would not have seen them in that way at all.
0: It, I have to say it would be impossible to... Do justice to to the scope and richness uh, of of this work in one program. Uh, so I want to focus on a few areas and and hope that in exploring these, we'll give listeners a flavour of, of both the depth of scholarship and the wealth of visual material to be found in these pages. Two chapters that I want to look at in in some detail are settlement and society, and materials and methods. Rory Sherlock, um, when we think of medieval Ireland. I suppose we often think again of churches, monasteries, abbeys, round towers, ecclesiastical architecture. But of course, life was lived and living spaces were shaped outside of church structures. Homes were made, social spaces, as you described, they were made uh, within medieval buildings. When we, you know, again, looking at the landscape we have now, how do we see the influence of human settlement you know, from pre-Christian times through the medieval period to, to what we have today?
3: Traces of the architectural heritage of Ireland can be found across a very broad range of of time periods in prehistoric times. We're largely dealing with the work of the archaeologist because it's very difficult to identify physical evidence for prehistoric uh, settlement in the landscape. In a certain sense, for a long time, elements of prehistory were regarded as a landscape of the dead because they were characterised by the funerary monuments rather than by the, the homes of the living, which were more difficult to find. When you come into the medieval period, settlement is a little easier to spot. You see the ring forts and the castles of the early medieval period, and for... A long time there was a, an idea that these fell out of use with the arrival of the Anglo-Normans uh, in 1169-1170, that the ring forts and the castles were reasonably quickly abandoned in favour of Anglo-Norman modes of living, the castles and the towns and the villages and so forth. But that's no longer thought to be the case. A lot of those native traditional forms of settlement continued in use right through uh, the period we're discussing, right into the 1500s and perhaps even into the
0: 1600s. So we're, we're really looking at layers Layers and layers of settlement and, and shape, aren't we? And as and it was again, a shifting understanding of landscape features like forts and rats, as you say. You know, and I love that idea of it almost being absorbed into the imagination of the people, then, so that they become uh, centres of a, a kind of another worldness. Like you were talking about the, the idea of the realm of the dead, but even the, the idea of the realm of, of fairy life and what. That opens up. But coming back to the idea of, of the homes that were created within structures like tower houses and, and hall houses that you look at in a great deal of detail in, in, in this volume.
3: It's, it's interesting to note that when you look at high-status architecture in Ireland from the medieval period, particularly castles and associated structures, that the position of the hearth can tell you an awful lot about the, the way in which life was lived in that building. And in a lot of cases, they weren't building elaborate fireplaces built into the walls. They were creating a central hearth within the middle of a high-status room. We could, for example, think of central hearths sitting on the floor in the middle of a room as being a feature of a very low-status dwelling. But actually, that continued throughout uh, all levels of society. And there seems to have been, in the Irish mindset particularly, a a great fondness for the idea of a central hearth. Tower houses were still being built in the Irish landscape in the 1500s, which had a central hearth as the principal feature in the main room of the building. And that's something that would have been very strange to a visitor coming from a similar environment in in England, for example, where modes of architecture had changed because of the changes in society at the time. By the 1500s, most high status or gentry architecture in England had moved into the realm of the country house, the, the manor house, the undefended uh, manor house of the time. But tower houses, small castles, were still being built in Ireland throughout the 1400s, the 1500s, and even the early 1600s. So that, I suppose, Comes from political instability and a lack of security, but within that you, you can get ideas of how people lived within those buildings at the time.
0: Rachel quotes Morris Craig uh, from his study of Irish architecture up to 1880 in introduction, uh, and Morris Craig saying that everything of antiquity in Ireland is made of stone, and nearly all the stone is grey. And she's of course of Louis McNeese's Dublin in in that, but is is that true? I mean, or, or must we consider vanished landscapes of wood and cloth and and paint and Materials that I suppose, you know, have disappeared with, with weather and time.
3: Yes, I, I think it would be more correct to say everything that survives is of stone. And the Irish landscape is dotted with numerous tower houses and other types of castles, which are essentially stone shells. They've lost most of their organic materials. their timber floors and doors and the wonderful roofs that would have kept them warm and dry as well. Anyone visiting a castle today has to reimagine it as a very, very warm and welcoming place, a place where the walls would have been rendered with plaster and whitewashed and in many cases would have had very bright, very beautifully done uh, wall paintings as well. One of the pieces in the book by Karina Morton gives some idea of what these wall paintings would have been like. The problem, of course, is that once a tar house loses its roof, the weather gets in, the plaster and the painting uh, tend to fall off the wall. So I think we're missing a little there.
0: You know, moving from the ground floor up in a tower house, what would we have encountered?
3: A visitor to an Irish tower house in the late 1500s left us a very good account. He was met by the family at the door of the tower house. He entered into the tower and he ascended right up to the top of the building. The hall was on the topmost floor and you can see this in in quite a few of the tower houses today. The central hearth was prepared in the centre of the floor and there the feasting took place in the evening. That notion of feasting in Gaelic Ireland was quite important. The wealth and the welcome of the Lord could be measured within that feast, uh, not only by the food and the drink. Drink available, but also by the musicians and the poets and so forth who were also in attendance. It's an unusual thing in our mindset to have the public or semi-public space at the very top of the building. The lowest floor would probably have been used for storage. It was usually poorly lit and the intervening floors were probably private chambers. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about the central hearth. They really wanted to keep that central hearth for as long as they could. And it's only around 1600, at the end of the period covered by this volume that we see those central hearts being taken out and replaced by fireplaces.
0: We, again we may have a perception that that they came in with the new English settlers and uh, there was as as I read from you a, a grant at a particular period it was a £10 in the early 1400s for anyone building a tower house within the pale. It seems that they were not just the domain of, of of the new settlers, but were also part of the lives of, of Gaelic Ireland.
3: The, there's no strong evidence that the Gaelic Irish were building castles before the arrival of the Anglo-Normans. And in fact, in the late 1100s, 1200s, 1300s, it was really only the Anglo-Normans were building castles, apart from a handful of examples on the Gaelic Irish side. But when the tower houses start to be built, around 1400s uh, from then on, It's thought there were perhaps 3,000 of them built in the Irish landscape between 1400 and 1640. So that's a really intense period of construction at the time. And one of the reasons for that is that it crosses the cultural divides uh, in Ireland. It's not only been built by Anglo-Normans, now the Gaelic Irish are building castles as well. Of course, the other reason for that is a trickle-down effect. Castle ownership and castle construction are no longer the preserve of the uppermost echelons of society. So that's one of the reasons that you see a real intensification of tower house construction in some parts of the country. Somebody once said, where you find hurling, you'll find tower houses. And I think that's partly due to the quality of the land. Counties like Galway, Clare, Limerick, Kilkenny, Tipperary, down into Wexford. Those are the real strongholds of tower house construction in the Irish landscape, where in some cases you might find three or four or five tower houses within a single parish. They're not close to each other. And another reason why you see them popping up like mushrooms in the country around this time is, we think, an inheritance. There was a Gaelic tradition which seems to have survived at that time whereby estates were divided on the death of the head of the family. So instead of the entire estate going directly to the, to the eldest son, the estate was broken up into two or three or four portions. The eldest son might stay at the centre of the estate and continue to live in his father's house, but his younger brothers may have to build their own tower houses a short distance away and rare their families. And so the families tended to fracture. Uh, and in doing so, they tended to construct quite a lot of tower houses generation by generation.
0: Are there particular examples of tower houses left in, in the country that people can visit and get a strong sense of of, of what they were like?
3: There, there are. I mean, they vary hugely in size. The ones you mentioned in the region of the Pale are very small and simple. And they range from those small little towers right up to the the peak, which would be, I suppose, Bunratty Castle down in County Clare, uh, certainly the largest and the most complex of the surviving tower houses of the period. It really gives people a sense of what it was like to live in one of those tower houses. Bunratty was restored from a ruin in the 1950s. It's, it's got a very long and complex history. It started out as a, an Anglo-Norman castle, which is very unusual in County Clare, which was largely a Gaelic stronghold. But there was a little Anglo-Norman settlement in a region called Tradree, which extended from Bunratty through where Shannon is now and up as far as Quinn. And it was in the late 1200s and the early 1300s you had a little Anglo-Norman settlement in that area. But they came under great pressure in the Gaelic Revival. And by the early to mid 1300s, the Anglo-Normans had effectively retreated out of Thomond, out of what was later to become County Clare. And Bunratty became a stronghold of the McNamaras. And we think that the building that stands there now is largely a construction of the McNamaras even though it's most closely associated in people's minds with the O'Briens. But as far as we can tell, the O'Briens only came to the site and took over the McNamara's castle later on in the 1500s. And they made some very significant changes to it. The fourth Earl of Thomond in the late 1500s really transformed Bunratty. He actually referred to Bunratty as his house rather than his castle because he was a Renaissance man. He was a Protestant. He was uh, reared in London. He had spent some time in the court of Elizabeth I. He was uh, attempting through architecture to enhance his own personal status. He introduced uh, some very fine Stucco plaster work, which survives in a number of places within the buildings. He changed the skyline, removing some of the old battlements and putting a more elaborate skyline up there. And he also added on a series of rooms. We have a record from Bonrati from the early 1600s, which tells us that the Great Hall, which is a wonderful space today, it's the very heart of the medieval building. But by the early 1600s, the furnishings in the Great Hall were valued at just two pounds, whereas the furnishings in the dining room, one of the Earl of Thoman's new rooms in the building, were valued at fifty two pounds. Underlying that is a very strong change in social structure around that time. A couple of hundred years earlier, the Earl of Thomond or his equivalent would have been dining in the Great Hall with all his servants, relations, retainers, officers and so forth on a daily basis. By the early 1600s, he had effectively retreated into a private dining room. He still had a couple of hundred people in his household, but he wasn't interacting with them on a daily basis. And that's one of the big changes. And you can see that social change in the architecture of the time.
0: You're listening to us tonight. We're looking at volume one of the new Royal Irish Academy Art and Architecture of Ireland series. Our guests, Rachel Moss, the editor and principal author of that volume, and Rory Sherlock, one of the expert contributors to it. And another of those contributors to the volume is Rinal O'Flynn, director of the National Museum, also member of the advisory board to Volume 1. He's an expert on metalwork of the medieval period and has been showing us some examples from the collection of the National Museum of Ireland at Kildare Street in Dublin.
4: We're here in the Treasury in the National Museum, which is the major display of our early medieval treasures, including the great masterpieces such as the Yardachalis Tower Brooch and the Derry and Hoard. These objects, of course, have been removed from their context, and of course, looking at something in a museum gallery through a glass case is a completely different experience than seeing them or in the original uh, locations where they may have been kept here is an object known as the Moylock Belt Shrine from Moylock in County Sligo found in a bog in 1945. It's a leather belt cut into four sections and then encased in bronze plaques. It would fit about a 35-36 inch waist and on the front it has this very elaborate decorated buckle set with glass and silver inlaid glass studs and silver plaques, presumably associated with an early Irish saint. It doesn't have any inscription on it, so we don't know who it was made or for whom. The enameled studs are very similar to those on the Arda the Tower road, so we can date this to the eighth century. It is a unique piece from Ireland, but we know that there were a number of examples of such sacred belts. They were used for swearing oaths. Uh, in the life of Saint Movi it's sort of said that the uh, belt of the saint would never close around a lie. So effectively, this belt would have been placed around uh, the waist of the individual who was actually swearing an oath, whether it be an oath of allegiance or or otherwise. They were also used as cures, cures for ensuring safe uh, childbirth, cures for, for various diseases. And if we look here, we see that the object itself is very worn, the edges are worn so this had seen considerable use before it ended up being buried for safekeeping or to avoid uh, being stolen in a bog in County Sligo, with the intention of its being recovered The buckle and the buckle plate resembles to some extent Anglo-Saxon Frankish belt buckles and we know that uh, this is a great influence on Irish art the 8th century, uh, Germanic art of of Anglo-Saxon Britain and the Continent But more interestingly, the buckle itself has has its origins in late Roman military buckles, and it's possible that this may actually be an 8th-century replacement of a much earlier belt, which may have been imported from the Roman world in the 4th, early 5th century, around the time of the introduction of Christianity to Ireland, and was later then associated with some saint and therefore became an object of veneration, and that what we have here is a later copy of an earlier Roman military belt. So we're now upstairs in the Medieval Ireland exhibition, the end of the period covered in the book. It's divided into three galleries based on the uh, medieval description of uh, uh, societies in the the Middle Ages as the society was divided between those who who rule, those who work and those who pray. We're in the first gallery here dealing with those who, who rule so it's material around lordship, around kingship, around warfare. We have a number of objects which are commissioned by lordly couples so you'd have a lord and his wife mentioned and what we're looking at here is Lislachten or Bally Longford Cross. It's a processional cross measuring about 50 uh, centimetres in height, made of silver and gilt, with uh, a large figure of the crucified Christ in the centre, and then surrounded by a series of symbols at the ends of the arms of uh, three of the uh, four evangelists. On the left we have the Lion of St Mark, at the top we have the Eagle of St John, and on the right we have the calf of St. Luke. The cross itself, as you see, is is actually quite squat. It's actually shorter than it should be. That's because it's missing at the bottom the fourth medallion, uh, which would have the man or the angel representing Matthew. This was found by a farmer harrowing in a boggy field in North County Kerry around about 1870. It was found in fragments put together, which is why the piece is missing, it's a cross with decorated arms with this foliage around, uh, representing the fact that this is the, the cross on which Christ is crucified, the Tree of Life. It is, has a lengthy inscription which mentions the name of the uh, Lord John O'Connor, who is Lord of Kerry, and his wife, Avelina, or Eileen, daughter of the Knight. The inscription is in Latin, and she is a uh, Fitzgerald, uh, one of the Knights of Glynn. So here you have a, a lordly marriage represented in the inscription. So here it is a date on it, uh, 1479, and was almost certainly made for the nearby uh, Franciscan friary of Lislachten. And at the base of the cross, we have a series of uh, small friars, which are obviously Franciscan friars. They have the distinctive uh, Franciscan garb, and these are probably representation of Francis of Assisi. The other interesting thing that it has, it mentions the name of the craftsman here, who is a William Cornell. And we don't know who exactly he was, but we do know there was a William Cornell of this period working as an armourer in, in Dublin. Armours would have been working in metal, so he could also have been a goldsmith. So this piece may have actually been commissioned in Dublin for the Franciscan Ferry. So this would have been a fashionable piece. It's very much of its of its time and very much up to fashion. There are a number of other processional crosses of this type known from Ireland and Britain based on an English exemplar but this is one of the finest anywhere in Europe of its type.
0: Reinald O'Flynn, there, Director of the National Museum of Ireland. Rachel Moss, thinking about this whole world and the objects that were made in it and maybe filtering it all through a kind of Celtic mist, it's easy to imagine idyllic holy workers honouring God and craft and uh, all the rest of it in this island of saints and scholars and crafts, women and men. But the reality, as you point out, was more complex. And one person you mention is Robert, an illuminator from Trim in County Meath, who really wasn't taking any prisoners when it came to critics of his work.
2: I was keen to bring some of the artists to life because they've been very much forgotten. They're the invisible artists of Ireland, essentially. So um, I did quite a bit of work on trying to piece together something of the lives of these people. And we do get lots of fragments so we can begin to build a picture. Uh, This particular individual, and it's possibly a little bit unfair because a lot of the records of artists from this time can be gleaned from surviving records. And one of the, the very rich sources are court records. So perhaps slightly skewed view of a lot of artists uh, being criminals as well, but this particular individual who was living in the very early 14th century, um, he's described in the court records as both illuminator and also as Taylor. And the reason that he's actually recorded is because he's accused of a murder. And as one reads through the court records, it transpires that, as I've said, he's he's known as Illuminator and Taylor. Uh, He gets into a fight with somebody because this person has criticised his tailoring skills. That's just a a sort of an aside, but it's very interesting because when we begin to actually think about it, what seems to have occurred is that this man presumably isn't making a living as an artist, as an illuminator, which is his primary. This is how he's first referred to. And so he's had to take up a secondary trade. Sounds familiar, the 21st century. And unfortunately, this secondary day is not doing very well. He's used to being lauded as an illuminator, but not as a tailor. And this has led to the murder. So it gives us a really interesting little sidelight into not just this one individual, but, you know, the fact that artists even then were sometimes struggling to make a living.
0: And you have this fascinating index, which lists many of the names, a select hand list of artists and craftsmen. How did you find those names and put those indices together? Because for me, in, they really bring a sense of, of the reality and the materiality of it all mm. so vividly to life.
2: The genesis of, of this project was born out of Walter G. Strickland's Biographical Dictionary of Artists, in that he includes 33 artists from before the year 1600. So there was this sense prior to to this volume, that really there were very few named artists known and I was determined to to try and rectify that. Little did I realise when I embarked on it (laughs) quite how long it would take me and quite how many there were. We actually have... Uh, a surprising number of, of records going right, right back. Irish history is very rich in that. A lot of them, obviously, in, in Latin, in early and middle Irish. Uh, more recent ones coming to the end of my period, 1600, uh, we begin to see them translated into English. And we also have quite a number of signed works, predominantly things like the reliquaries and altar plate, as as Reinald referred to with the Les Cross. So what I thought would be an interesting exercise would be just to gather together all of these individuals predominantly from printed versions um, of medieval documents, although I did go back to to some original sources. And Interestingly, about 10, 15 years ago, this would have taken a lot longer, but because many of these medieval sources were actually transcribed and in some cases translated in the 19th century, those books are now out of copyright and they're now available online. God bless Google Books. (laughs) I hate to say it. But it it made it a lot easier, so I was able to use these sources, many of which were never indexed themselves, so you would literally have had to go through page by page, and some of them are sort of 19 volumes, if you think of the the records of the Dublin City Assembly. Literally typing in Goldsmith, or the Latin version, I was able to, it still took quite a while, I've got almost 800 um, named individuals here, but I was able to begin to gather them. Also, increasingly, archives have begun to put their records online as well, and various projects gathering together, for example, the Chancery Records, a a project that's uh, based in Trinity, the Circle Project, once I had names, I was able to Google them. Um, in, and this sounds bizarre for medieval individuals. And actually, I began to think, particularly with the, the recent debate over the right to be forgotten um, with Google, that uh, these poor individuals, little did they know 500 years ago, how much information we'd be able to gather together about them. And it does make me wonder about us 500 years hence, what they'll be able to get. But that's the same Will, will anybody look for us? This exactly, is the
0: question. Yes. Um, I But the names, even the first yeah. three names that are listed, I think, you know, Gold, Cloth, and they're just so strong.
2: They're very poetic, aren't they? Yeah. With names such as that, and I, I decided to include them, it's possible that they are there for the poetry, whether they were actual individuals with those earlier sources, which are very much looking back to a past, often an invented past, to add, I suppose, a sense of authority uh, to to the present, if you like. But I thought they were interesting to include even just um, the Book of Leinster transcribed in the, in the 12th century, even just so that we could get a sense of how somebody in the 12th century viewed the builders of the past because these individuals are being summed up really from the mists of time and that's why they're there but they may in fact not be real people at all.
0: The patron in, in the medieval Irish world, was that a very important aspect of, of the work that was done?
2: Absolutely, I think it's crucial and, and more than today, if you don't have an audience and somebody who's willing to, to pay for a work, then you just don't have work. So it really is important. Obviously, you do get Shifts and changes, but that in itself is very interesting to look at in more detail because it tells us so much about the history of the country. For example, in the the early medieval periods, so when you begin to get the construction of, of churches around here, somewhere like Clonmacnoise, for example, what we begin to detect are waves of, of patronage there, little bursts of activity, and those can be quite tightly tied into and linked to changes in territorial boundaries. So essentially, what's happening is, as as new clans or, or, or families come into power, those kings inject a little bit of money into a local monastery to commission, in, in the case of somewhere like Clomac perhaps new manuscripts. We also have a very important record from 1129, a theft from the altar at Clomac What's particularly interesting about that, it gives us an inventory of what was stolen, and it identifies things by what they were, so shrines and chalices and so on, but also by the name of the patron. And that tells us that at that time... Things had as much value for what they were as for who'd actually given them. And there was one exception, who's a, an archbishop of Armagh. This is Clarmac They're all local kings and, and their extended families. So it's, it's lending to the status of, of the monastery. But it also says something about how the local nobility is actually defining themselves. This is their, their public forum. The more valuable, something that they donate, that's displayed on the high altar of one of the most important churches in the country. That says something about their status as well So there's a a nice sort of interface there between church and state, if you like.
0: Uh, Speaking of of, of things displayed on on altars, um, within the book, obviously, pilgrimage and shrines, a big part of of the inherited landscape you look at. And uh, there are many striking examples of of local shrines and objects associated with them within the book. One such, and a vivid one, is the shrine of St Monchon in the church at Bohor in County Offaly. Amanda Pedlow, Heritage Officer for County Offaly, and Father James McKiernan of Bohor Parish have been telling us about the shrine and its history and place in the community.
5: Well, we're standing on a ridge of dry land, looking actually down south at the moment, where there'll be a lot of peatlands, and that's where the site of Limanahan Monastic Site, where St. Manchan founded it in the seventh century, and that's the site actually that's connected with with here, where the shrine would have been housed originally. Um, now, the site is connected through an old walkway that would have come across the bog up with Towers and so on into Bohar. So, as I say, we're looking over the lowlands, you know, from a higher ridge of land, and this this ridge of land, many people would have heard of the More, uh, the Esquerda kind of route connecting Dublin to Noyce and on to Galway. So we're part of that route way where we are at the moment. This church is a very beautifully laid out church dating to the 1860s and it's got some lovely features but I suppose one of the things many people are drawn to in addition to the shrine would be the Harry Clark studio windows. They would have been installed here by the Harry Clark studios in the 1930s and a stunning windows here and just beside us here is the window that features St Mankin and there's a number of elements to the window but the, the shrine is featured at the base of the window and over his head then is the cow that's very much associated with the story of St. Mankin coming to Lee Monaghan. The shrine is located uh, just to the right of the altar uh, in its own alcove here, as I say, located adjacent to the, to the window done with Harry Clock Studios. It's been very recently redisplayed um, because there was a theft and there's been a lot of work done by the parish to rehouse it in very secure accommodation but actually the case is very minimalist so it's actually very clear to see it now and the glass that was used is also non-reflective so actually the visibility of the shrine you can walk all around the four sides of it it's you know, it's a freestanding display case and it's we hope extremely secure now and also very very visible and uh, very easy to see all aspects
6: of the Shrine. It had a huge impact on the people in the locality here. Especially people are very much native of the community uh, because they have a strong affinity to the Shrine and they really were devastated. I mean, Some people actually cried when the Shrine was taken from the area because it was initially they thought it was gone forever but thanks to the great work of the Guards and to the vigilance of some local people they were able to retrieve the shrine within 48 hours of being stolen and then it was kept by the guards for a period of time until such time as we could put in place a very secure housing for it now.
5: I think that for everybody who has a strong affinity with St Mankin, and I, I obviously came to work in the county, and one of the very first projects I was involved in was the conservation of the site at Le Monaghan, and I was really, really impressed at how, to the forefront, St Mankin still is in the community. It's very much a part of the, the belief of the people in the area, and it really is very tangible to them. So, so I would say that having the original here is fundamental.
6: The Monaghan Church, the original church, is situated halfway between uh, St Mankin's church here in Boher and St Mary's church in Pulla. So the Mass is actually celebrated in both churches on the 24th of January, which is the feast of St Mankin. And on that day, we usually display the bones of St Mankin, which are reputed to be retained within the shrine. And uh, the people venerate the bones on the day and uh, at the celebration of Mass. There's a lot of people who would have a very special devotion to St. Manchin. Many people have called their children after St. Manchin. There are children named Monaghan and Manchin in the community here and even beyond the community. For the local community, they have a very, very strong affinity to it and a very strong connection to the Shrine. Well, the original, as far as we understand it, has been here from the very uh, time it was made in the 1130s. It would have been housed uh, in the original church, which was a, down at a place called Milan in Kuldera That church, unfortunately, was burned in a fire around the 1850s, but the shrine was the only thing that was retrieved out of the church and saved from the fire. And after that, then, it was kept by various families in the community, primarily by Moonies of Dune and also the Obocilas. Uh, there were families that would have had uh, guardianship of it and kept it very safe for many years. Until about the 1940s, when it was donated here to the church for safekeeping. It has been in the church here ever since then.
0: Father James McKernan of Bohor Parish in Offaly and before him Amanda Peddle, Heritage Officer for County Offaly there at the Shrine of St. Mancan. Uh, Rachel Moss, I suppose uh, we see an image of it in your volume, Medieval Art and Architecture of Ireland. A very beautiful object. And what makes it so distinct and I suppose gives it not just a, a very strong local significance but a strong national one too?
2: What I feel is so significant about it is that it is still in the parish for which it was made and is still used in the way for which it was intended to be used. I've I've been present at Mass on the Saints' Feast Day and it's really... Fantastic to see, and as as was uh, mentioned by Amanda and uh, and the local priest, that there is still a, a tremendous affinity with the saint because that tangible link is actually there, and they can actually see it and and indeed handle the saint on on, on the saint's day. In terms of the object itself, it, materially, it's not particularly valuable. It's not made from gold. It is yew wood and uh, with with sort of gilt bronze uh, fittings. But the shape is very distinctive, it's very large, it's the largest of our reliquary shrines and we think it's designed probably to look like a replica of the Ark of the Covenant because it has rings at the four corners that you would have been able to put poles or staves through to actually carry it um, in procession and this is quite close to the biblical description um, of the Ark of the Covenant. That's unique in an Irish context. We do have visual references to such shrines um, in Europe as well and slightly later ones uh, made in that way although not in that distinctive sort of pyramidal shape. That seems to relate back to the form of shrines made in Ireland out of slabs of stone that would have been built beside a church that would have held the relics of a saint that you could Pilgrims could come along and and rub a rag, for example, on on the actual bones. So St. Malcolm's Shrine is essentially a translation into wood and metal of possibly an earlier slab shrine that that held the remains. And then in the 12th century, those bones were probably dug up, put in the shrine. And um, there are still bones within that. Uh, reliquary, which is really fantastic and I think a real credit to the local community. There's a lovely reference, I think it's the 1840s, George Petrie, the very avid collector of Irish antiquities, went to see the shrine. It was then held by the family, that the Moonies at Dune, and he offered £40 for it and he was disgusted that they wouldn't part with it. Most communities did part with theirs. So.
0: Is it important that objects like that remain within a community, that they're not all, for instance, seen uh, in national institutions like the National Museum, even though we know that they will be safe there and and really properly looked after it. but still there's something very resonant about something staying in its own locale isn't it?
2: There really is I mean this is the big issue the, the, the balancing of safety and security and it's such a, a great shame that so many objects have had to be moved into the museum on the one hand it's it's such a privilege to be able to walk into the National Museum to not have to pay to go into the National Museum and to be able to wander around and compare various objects but certainly I think they lose something of their resonance. And that's very striking when one goes to visit something like um, St. Monica's Shrine or, up until 2009, the Dawson Museum, for example, at Longford, which was a real pleasure to visit and the closest thing that we had to a a great medieval treasury because there, behind St. Mel's Cathedral, even though it was a 19th century cathedral, we had a gathering together of the treasures of the diocese. Now, some of those treasures were, again, materially not very valuable, but they held great value to the members of the diocese. And alas... Totally, some of them destroyed by fire in 2009. We do have this terrible dilemma: should we bring things like that all into one place? What if that one place gets destroyed? So I think there's there's an argument to be made for both in a way.
0: Rory, I suppose that at least buildings, <laughs> for the most part, stay in in their place, are are not moved. But the things that are held within those buildings, obviously, are you know can be taken out, and they the removal of those can really change how we look. at at what is left. Again, you know, how how do we strike that balance between the need for if you like local preservation and honouring of something within its own context and a larger frame and examination within I suppose not only a national narrative, but looking at something within a, a bigger international
3: context. Well, it's one of the one of the big problems, I suppose, uh, in architectural history and in archaeology, the preservation of sites and monuments. There are quite a number, numbered in the hundreds, and national monuments in the country, but there are well over 100,000 archaeological monuments in the Irish landscape. And preserving those, the vast majority of which are in private ownership, is an ongoing problem. Um, Some suffer from neglect, some suffer occasionally from vandalism and some simply suffer from the ravages of time and weather. So preserving those buildings can be quite difficult. We should also remember when conserving a building or restoring a building There's a story there. That building evolved over time, and it didn't remain static. It served a purpose when it was built, but it changed over time. Winston Churchill said when they talked about restoring the House of Commons in London after it was bombed uh, in the war, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And I think that's quite an important thing about architecture, the idea that we create our architecture in a way that suits our needs at that particular time. But that architecture in in, in return, whether it's a radio studio or a university lecture hall or a local church, has an impact, has a, has a resonance on how people interact with each other. And the same thing is true of medieval buildings. Those buildings were changed quite a bit over time. It's one of the, the minor niggles I would have, for example, with the Restoration of of Bunrati, that there was an effort made to take Bunrati back to its 15th century origins and in doing so a lot of the changes that had been brought in in the later 1500s and the early 1600s the attempts to transform it into a renaissance house were actually taken back out of the building in an attempt to get back to this notion of a simple Gaelic castle of the 15th century. So in preserving buildings we have to be mindful of the full life of the building.
0: Of course again we think of of what's held in some as seemingly simple as an Norm stone uh, which uh, Dorothy Cross talked about in the beginning of the programme tonight and uh, her perspective on all this I suppose uh, to be seen at the garden galleries in my Rachel in, in your introduction to the book uh, you quote Luke Gurnan uh, travelling in Ireland in 1620 and describing Irish towns as being the, like the latter end of a feast it's a wonderful image here a ruined castle there a broken abbey like a carcass on a table and I suppose that for me that's a really memorable image and reminder that ruins have been a theme and reality in this country since medieval times and for somewhat longer. And I I think what you have managed very much to do in in this book is to reimagine uh, the details of of that feast uh, that Luke Gurnan evokes in in his writing for us in its its brokenness and and its splendour. Hopefully it it will bring many new people to, to look because there's this strong sense as well that this is an ongoing work there's a great deal more to come and this volume of art and architecture of ireland volume one medieval 400 to 1600 certainly makes for rich fare rachel moss and rory charlotte thanks to you both and for more information on the art and architecture of ireland series visit ria.ie On next week's programme, I speak with writer, mapmaker and visual artist Tim Robinson, visit his archive and an exhibition at NUI Galway, dedicated to his life and work in Ireland over four decades, and we hear him read from a new book, Connemara and Elsewhere. Join us then. Good night.